everyday, ordinary people living extraordinary lives. For the next few minutes, join me as I introduce you to some of them. We have to break that cycle now and teach them how to fish, not hand them fish, not, you know, give them food for, you know, we have to teach them how to fend for themselves. I'm B. Moore, and welcome to Conversations. I've heard in many conversations references made to today's youth and how they are our lost generation. Well, my next guest has dedicated his life to making a positive impact on this very same group to help them find their way. My name is Hassan Stevens. I am the founder and executive director for the Good Life Philanthropic Youth Foundation. I am also an adjunct professor at SUNY Cortland, um, and some may know me as DJ Maestro in the community. Okay. All righty. Well, welcome to Conversations. Thank you. Hassan, I really appreciate your presence here today. And I want to just, you know, there's so many different things we could talk about, but the major thing that I would like to speak to you today on is the Good Life Youth Foundation that you started. And why don't you just tell us a little bit about the organization? Well, so first off, we're a connector organization. And so our model is encourage the dream, empower the reality. And so that's a very important model, I think, to, for us because, you know, we often tell kids to dream and then don't give them necessary tools in order to turn their dreams into a reality, right? And so we say, you know, um, what, is, what is the saying that a, uh, a dream without a plan is just a dream, right? And so we're trying to connect youth to opportunity and access by using hip hop culture and teaching them about life skills, financial literacy and asset management and entrepreneurship. Uh, we recently have factored in a little bit of health in there because in order for you to be a successful business person, entrepreneur, or person, period, you have to think about your health, right? So what are the different various elements it requires in order to live a good life? Certainly, certainly. So what inspired you to, to even start this organization? Honestly, through my life experience. So, you know, I, I knew when I was younger that I always wanted to give back and I always wanted to do what had been done to me. I had been mentored. Um, I had been removed and taken out of the ghetto, out of the hood. I was one of four friends who uh, the others didn't make it. Jimmy Marvin Kevin did not make it out of Edenwall Projects in the Bronx. And so uh, I was the only one out of that crew that, that made it. And that was primarily because I was exposed to uh, different things, to different environments, opportunities. And without those opportunities, I don't know where I'd be. So I, I, I knew that I wanted to create something for black youth. And originally the idea growing up, because I grew up poor, was this idea of nouveau riche. Right. And so Nouveau Riche was NU for Nubian or black, VO for voice and Riche for French for the rich. Right. And so the black voice of the rich. I vowed that I never wanted another kid to go through the same experience that I went through, um, not having. And I wanted to educate people on money and finances the way that I tried to educate myself. And so as I got older and I started breaking into the youth like, you know, to education and uh, youth circles, youth work, um, I realized that this is not just a black thing. It's a Latino thing, right? There's some poor whites. There's some along the way. And so I've realized that, you know, it can't just be the black voice of the rich. It had to be 
struggling youth and what it was, you know, what was necessary to have a good life. So that's kind of the concept and how it kind of evolved and developed. Um, and I, I watched other organizations and this is not a knock. I don't want to um, be disrespectful to, to any other groups, but I watched other organizations and they didn't have the formula that that I thought we needed. I, they didn't have what I was looking for, how I thought that an organization should engage youth. Um, and so I said, rather than trying to operate within someone else's guidelines and uh, vision, I had my own vision and I wanted to see it come to fruition. Sure, sure. And you mentioned that you are originally from the Bronx. Tell me a little bit about, and you were the only one that made it. And I want you to go into a little bit more about what happened to the other that you mentioned and uh, why you feel like you had made it and what went into Mm -hmm. your making it versus them not making it. Well, uh, it was a click of four. So the other three, Jimmy, Marvin, and Kevin, um, one was arrested for gang rape, one was shot up, and the other one was arrested for selling drugs. And so uh, we originally, this is, this is, I feel like this is the prototype, you know, a prototypical story of the ghetto, right? Is, you know, kids that at a very young age are extremely impressionable. They're doing well in school, in elementary school, and then people start to veer off and, and, and find their own pathways, right? As they are trying to understand who they are and, um, and rationalize and, and navigate their own personal identities. And so what did it for me was my education. You know, my mother, who was a single mom at the time, um, yeah, who, well, throughout the, all, all the time, really instilled upon me the importance of and value of education. And my dad, who, while they weren't together, was still in my life, did the same. And so for me, it was a vehicle for me to, to, to move out of the hood, right? Uh, Jimmy, Marvin, and Kevin were all doing well in school along with me, uh, but they got into different avenues of making money, different avenues of of spending and occupying their time. Uh, My mom made sure that I was busy. She made sure that I, um, you know, not only was doing well in school, but was was finding other activities. So I joined martial arts early on um, in the community there in Edenwall. Uh, After that, because of my education, I received an opportunity to leave the ghetto, to leave the hood, and go to one of the best private schools in the nation, you know. Um, I, I eventually attended Horace Mann, which is like the number one day private school in the country. So I had two lives, literally. Um, there was this dichotomy of coming home and dodging bullets and, you know, checking around corners to make sure that I could get into my home safely and, and avoiding being jumped and, um, you know, trying to figure out how I could make money the right way, but, you know, still needing money. And, you know, and then I would, during the daytime, be hanging with some of the richest kids in the nation. And I'd be walking up the hill to go to school after I got off the train. My school location was literally 10 to 15 minutes from where I lived, but because a huge park, and we, and we know this, for, you know, geographical racism, right? Because a huge park divided the haves and the have-nots, I had to take a train all the way to Manhattan, cross over, and come all the way down. So it took me an hour or a little over an hour just to get to school every day. And I would get off the train and walk up this big hill to what it seemed like a mansion, you know, high school. And people would be driving by me in Porsches and Mercedes and, and BMWs. And these are kids in high schools, not mommy and daddy's car, but their car, mm-hmm. right? And so I had the opportunity to be exposed to a different world to see, wow, people my age have this and their parents have this. I want that. And I think that was a, um, 
that kind of juxtaposition between where I come from and where I want to go was a solidified in my brain that, hey, there is a, a different world that I want to be a part of. Sure. Yeah. And, and to see that possibility and aspire to it. Absolutely. Definitely. Definitely. And it's interesting. Uh, I was in a recent conversation with someone about code switching and how you operate in one world and how you have to operate in another world. Right. It sounds like something that you have to become very adept at doing. Yeah. You know what? I, I wasn't early on. I was not good at it. I had a lot of resentment. You know, if, if you if you really want to know, like navigating a, a all white private school with people that had whatever they wanted, I, I really had a lot of anger and resentment and I did not like white people at first I mean I know that's tough to say but I can be honest about it I, I, di I didn't understand I didn't you know because I saw um, racism in the community I saw uh, you know and, and, it's, and it's funny the way we, we think about race in America but you know I didn't know what a white person was until about sixth or seventh grade you know because we just it's people right and I didn't re I didn't even stop to think like oh my teachers are white right um, it was like they were just different, but race wasn't even a, a thing until you get old enough to understand the disparities between your people and others in America. And you're like, whoa, yeah. you know, yeah. um, so I had to kind of figure that out. Um, and then I learned that people are people and they're good people no matter what color and whatever else. And so I eventually became good at code switching because originally I was so uncomfortable in those spaces, I didn't feel like I belonged, mm. you know? So code switching requires that you're comfortable in different spaces and you adapt to those spaces. And I, that's something that had to be learned particularly. And then we wonder why we're asking kids to go to jobs and keep jobs and acclimate to that environment. We're asking kids to, you know, be able to, uh, maneuver in environments to be successful and have never given them the opportunity to be exposed to it. So if I being exposed was uncomfortable and it, had, it was a huge learning curve, right, mm -hmm. to, be, to be able to effectively code switch, we have to understand that the sort of average kid in the hood, that's just not a reality. Sure. And so that's what good life is about. It's like, listen, how do we expose you to new opportunities, experiences, new people? How do we expose you to new environments? And then how do we give you the necessary tools to learn how to code switch and maneuver in those environments? Certainly, certainly. Now you have a, a specific demographic and a specific age range that you work with, and I want you to tell me about all sure. of that and maybe some of the tools, if you will, that you utilize in terms of helping the kids that you work with. We work with ages 13 to 24. Um, we are not um, restrictive in terms of you know, racial demographic criteria or anything like that. Uh, we, we help youth in general, but we super serve African-American and Latino youth. And so being in Syracuse where it's number one for the concentration of poverty for African-Americans and Latinos, it is important for us to really super serve that population to make sure, because they are the most disenfranchised population, to make sure that they have the necessary tools to get what they need. We have about 35% Latino, um, uh, it's about 55% um, African-American, and then we've had some, uh, some white youth and mixed, you know, uh, others that, that identify as mixed or, or um, uh, biracial. And so that changes frequently as we get referrals, but our primary demographics are African-American and Latino. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let me just say, so the reason why we chose 13 to 24 
is because I think, again, going back to that notion of organizations not doing it the way that I saw it should be done, 13 to 24 is, to me, that demographic that's forgotten. So you get a certain age, people say, oh, they're too far, they're too far gone. What? Right? That's absurd. Mm -hmm. That they can't be helped. That's absurd. And there's all these movements, early intervention, early education, all, you know, yes, that's great. And I'm glad there are those organizations. But what about the youth that have, that were missed, that fell through the cracks, that were not loved then and will not go on being loved because all of our focus and energy is on early interventions in, in uh, adolescent, you know, very early childhood years, right? These kids need love. They need education. They need supports. Uh, and, and so 13 is the earliest age that I think is mature enough to really take business seriously. And 24, based on the brain science of when the frontal lobe starts, stops developing, the, the part of your brain that governs your decision-making process. Um, so that range and what we've seen is that there's not a huge difference between behavior in these, ty in these communities between the 13-year-old and the 21 or 22-year-old, right? And so we have to address the, the very similar issues for, for both of them. 13-year-olds are being forced to grow up and be men before they're supposed to. And young men oftentimes are underdeveloped because they haven't had the, the access to opportunities to be able to develop themselves, right? And they're stunted emotionally and socially. Interesting. That's very interesting because, like you said, there's... Uh, oftentimes it's it's looked upon as if, well, you're already grown. Mm -hmm. Why am I going to work with you? Yeah, you're too far along. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, that's very true. Very true. And, and we and we get a a bad rap as black people because you know the 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 statistics and the studies that show that our kids are are viewed as older and more threatening at an earlier age, right? So we don't even get an opportunity to live childhood. You know, we're forced to step into this, you know, Tamir Rice, you're 12 years old. He was a, a grown man with a gun. Right. Yeah. Like that's absurd. Right. So we have to be able to introduce them to childhood again and then help them develop as they as they they grow. Certainly. Certainly. I'm just curious in terms of um, why Syracuse was that conscious, unconscious, just life happened and brought you here. Um, I believe that. There are no mistakes with God, right? God puts you in, you know, my, my life, if, if, I, if I pinpoint the various milestones and obstacles that I've crossed and faced in life, um, I believe they were tests leading me to this moment in time. And when I first got here, I did not like Syracuse. I'm from New York. It's slower. Um, I wanted more opportunity. I wanted, you know, I'm also a DJ, so I wanted to be able to have a nightlife and do things, right? And so we also know that the lack of nightlife and entertainment and, and social life is also one of the things that prevents the area from retaining African-American and Latino professionals of color, right? Um, so I said, eventually, I'm going to just create it. Whatever's not here, I'm going to create it, right? And in the process of shifting my mindset, I started to fall in love with the community. And I started thinking, wait a minute, Syracuse, one, it needs me, right? It needs me as it needs others. Two, you know, I don't want to complain without doing something. Three, I'm, I grew up in the Bronx and I grew up poor and, I'm, and we, were, we were not well off. You know, I grew up with feces and urine around me and crackheads and, you know, bullets flying every night. But there was a different type of poverty up here. See, in New York, you can get on a train and go to Opportunity 
you can go to, you know, it's, it's, it's an easier journey for someone who does not have. Here, there's such a disenfranchisement, there's such a disconnection that it's like, wow, somebody's got to help. You know, it's not random that they said this is number one for the concentration of poverty of African-Americans and Latinos, 13th poorest city in the nation overall. That is visible, right? Um, and so I felt like, what can I do here? To me, Syracuse is the easiest place to become a millionaire and the fat, you know, in the fastest manner. Because you're you're it's such a small community that you're connected enough if you do the right thing, but no one's teaching these kids what the right thing is, mm-hmm. right? I think this is the place that is the epicenter for change. Um our school systems are going through change and the state of New York is looking at us. New York City is modeling after us, right? There's a juvenile justice and criminal reform movement that's going on here because it has the right people. And the state of New York is looking at us for change and identifying what's happening in Syracuse. So if we can change it here in the number one place of poverty for us, we can change it anywhere. So that's why for me, it's a mission. It's like, let's let's show the world what needs to happen. Do it here and then replicate it and go everywhere. Wonderful. And if you're just joining us, welcome to Conversations. I'm your host, B. Moore. My guest today is Hassan Stevens. He is the CEO and founder of the Good Life Youth Foundation. Hassan, um, one of the things that I noticed um, just looking at your website and just listening to you mm-hmm. is the emphasis on entrepreneurial approach. And I, I want you to talk a little bit about that because why it is so mm-hmm. important to, to be entrepreneurial. Yeah. Uh, Two things that saved me was uh, education and entrepreneurship, right? I mentioned education before. Entrepreneurship was, uh, you know, at the age of 12, I walked into a barbershop and identified a problem. I saw that they were, one, too busy, could not take care of the place, um, and two, customers weren't being treated with the type of um, uh, respect or service that they could be treated with. And I asked them simply, can I sweep up your floors and brush up, you know, customers as they got off? And so, uh, you know, that and obviously that was from a 12 year old's mind. Right. Um, And I I went in and recognized that I never want to work for someone. I really just I don't. You know, I wanted to be in control of uh, the amount of money I made and and my opportunities. Uh, But I was also a 12 year old that would walk away with 75 to 100 dollars a day. Right. And so if I was able to do that, I wanted to continue. And then I started picking up hip hop, uh, you know, culture, um, which which I have to you know, when I say entrepreneurship, hip hop is entrepreneurship for me. So growing up in that culture about creating something from nothing, I started rapping and then I got into DJing. And when I was homeless, you know, I I was homeless at one point, uh, didn't have a roof over my head to sleep on the floor of, of people that I knew. It was DJing that got me out of that. It was that skill set that made money that got me out of that, right? And so if you always possess a skill set that can generate money, uh, or if you always have the skill set to walk into a room in a situation and identify how you can make money, you'll never be, you know, poor for long. You'll never be, you know, homeless for long. You'll never be out and about, right? And so that's why I think entrepreneurship is key for these kids. They're going to be tomorrow's poor. 
They're going to be tomorrow's cycle, right? The main agents in a cycle of poverty that continues. We have to break that cycle now and teach them how to fish, not hand them fish, not, you know, give them food for, you know, we have to teach them how to fend for themselves in a world that often disconnects them from entrepreneurship. And I think our culture is incredibly entrepreneurial. If you look at the history of African-Americans, we've always been entrepreneurial. Right. It's no it's no random occurrence that African immigrants that come over here. The first thing that they, they think of is, you know, uh, how do I set up a business and, and sell something? Right. That that's in our blood. And so we have to return these youth to their history and the connection to their 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 predecessors and their ancestors and, and what's in our naturally in our blood. And that's entrepreneurship. Very true. Speaking of entrepreneurial. Yeah. So one of the things that you were able to do with the Good Life You Foundation mm-hmm. is take it from a negative budget mm-hmm. to now over a million dollar budget. Mm-hmm. And I want you to talk about how you were able to accomplish that. Um, <clears throat> broadly speaking, surrounding myself with people that knew. I think a lot of times when you look at black entrepreneurs, they get into business and, um, and, and I don't wanna, let me, let me do this. I don't wanna generalize, right? But I've come across a lot of black entrepreneurs that think they know it all. That, because, because one thing about our people is pride, right? Um, we get into business, we have a talent that can make money, but then we don't learn all the other things that have to go along with it in order to flourish that talent, right? Um, so we're starting restaurants and we don't learn how to market. <laughs> right? We don't learn about customer service and engaging. You walk into a restaurant and you have to wait forever right, for someone to serve you or even to say, hello, I'm sorry, I'll be right back, right? Uh, you have to wait forever for your food so we don't have systems. We don't create the systems for efficiency in the business. These are all business strategies and ideas that are required in order for you to be successful. And so what I did was I walked in not knowing, not, not thinking that I knew everything. Um, I knew a lot, right? Whatever I knew, there was somebody else that knew a lot that could match with me. And so I made sure that I surrounded myself with people that could advise me. The other thing was I was a sponge. So I, I participated in every leadership training, every classroom that I could get into to learn. Because remember, I came from film and music, entertainment. Uh, I was a DJ. I didn't know anything about the nonprofit world, right? So every single session that I could walk into, if I saw a, a workshop, I was there. I was taking notes. I was learning. So I was that sponge. So for whoever I didn't surround myself in, in terms of people capital, Right, I surrounded myself with knowledge. And I think really that's what allowed me to bring the organization. The first two years was me funding it out of my pocket as a DJ and just saying, excuse me, th- this is what kids need. They, you know, um, you know, you're hungry, okay. You know, I'll take you out to lunch, you know, or, or whatever it was that was necessary. You need clothes? Okay, L- let me figure that out. I, I, you know, I, I didn't have it myself, but I'm gonna make sure that you have at least what I have, right? And so I, I think that those were the things that allowed me to grow it, was learning how to make the right decisions based on advice and based on information that I received and picked up. Okay. And um, speaking of your, your budget, now you are about to uh, go into a, a new building, I understand. Yeah. You received 700000 from um, Reddick, and for those who don't know, that's... Regional Economic Development Council. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So tell me a little bit about this building, or tell us a little bit about this building that sure. you're, you're um, in the process of going into. Um, 
again, everything we do at Good Life is about hip hop. So we we utilize hip hop culture and music as a vehicle for understanding for youth. And so uh, naturally, if we're focused on entrepreneurship, and again, I mentioned hip hop is entrepreneurship, right? Um, or I should say is it is very entrepreneurial. We're creating the first ever hip hop center for youth entrepreneurship. Uh, it's a 37,000 square foot building on the west side of Syracuse uh, where the south and the west connect. And the goal is to create a cultural hub for youth to learn financial literacy and entrepreneurship and get the services that they need. So one, it's a, it's a collaboration between like-minded youth organizations. The organizations that put youth first and are youth-centered, we want them there in that building so that the kids have a one-stop shop to walk in and get whatever the services they need. Um, similarly, we have a number of different uh, industry opportunities. So there's going to be a full-fledged, uh, full-service uh recording studio there. When you ask kids about what they want to be when they grow up, the, the you're shaking your head, right? Cause it, because you know what the three answers are, right? You either want to be a rapper, uh, NFL player, or an NBA star. And so what I'm saying is let's incentivize them. You want to rap? Come on in, get free studio time if your grades are up, if you're attending school, right? But we're going to teach you about the industry of hip-hop. You maybe want to, want to be the lawyer behind the, 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 the artist or the rapper that makes more money than the actual rapper, right? You want to be the manager behind the rapper. You want, you know, so uh, what are the different elements of the industry? And then also understanding the industry so that if you really are the artist, that you make sure going in, you are the, the well-developed and financially sound artist, right? Um, and so we have a print shop. So we've already started a, uh, some social enterprises. We have a couple of social enterprises. One of them is GLN Printing, which is a full-fledged, uh, full-service uh, print and, and promotional uh, company. So we can do embroidery, screen printing, dye sublimation, um, all your printing needs from mugs to T-shirts to jackets, hoodies. Uh, and so this building is going to house a larger print op operation that's going to allow us to hire youth, train youth, and, and also um, provide larger services for the, the, the local community. Uh, it would also give youth an opportunity to create their own custom design label uh, that they can then sell and, and, and generate revenue from that as well. The, uh, we also have an uh, art gallery where photographers, so we have some people that graduated our program and are now you know, uh, photography entrepreneurs and places that they can you know, post their work and, and have people come in and view it. Uh, we have a cafe, a test kitchen where we're looking to do a, a, uh, a cafe. I can't r divulge the name and, and what the concept yet, um, but we're, it's going to be really, really cool involving hip hop uh, culture. And so there's going to be a meeting space. There's going to be residential housing for people who want apartments. Um, and then uh, some office space. So it's, it's, it's going to be a mixed use property. That, that we're hoping is really going to shift and change that environment. As you know, it's facing, right there on the west side, it's facing an impoverished community. Um, and so we're looking to speak to that community through the graffiti. You know, we're keeping up some of the graffiti on the wall. We're creating opportunities for other artists to do graffiti and put messages that are positive um, and merging that with modern style, professional looking building surfaces. So, yeah. Oh, very nice, very nice. So when will this building be up and going? We have already uh, started our capital campaign. Uh, we have to raise, as you mentioned, $6 million. 
And so we're well on our way. We've raised about 850000 and we're in a quiet phase. And then once we um, go public, you know, we're going we're gonna to try to start breaking ground. And our hopes is January 2021, we should be opening our doors. Wow. Yes. That's awesome. Yes. That's awesome. Definitely. With funding and monies being poured into the project, mm-hmm. they're obviously um, going to want to see results. Yes. Now, what, what defines success wow, from your perspective? Question. That's a really good question. And that's something that we often talk to people about, right? Because our successes don't look like other people's successes. And we have to understand that. So we are dealing with the most challenging population in Syracuse. We're, we're dealing with shooters. We're dealing with, um, you know, formerly incarcerated, people coming home. We're de- and so it's the population that often people are either ill-equipped to engage or choose not to engage because you cannot have those feel-good uh, outcomes on paper. So-and-so graduated and, you know, are we encouraging youth to graduate? Absolutely, right? Because again, education is key. But some of our successes might look, if a kid hasn't been going to school at all, getting him to school three or four times a week might be a huge success. Now he's in the building. Now we can do something, right? If a kid has never had a job before in their life, getting them into a legal means of making money while helping them gain the skills that eventually they may be able to have a higher than minimum wage paying job or start their own business, that's successful to us, right? Success is not going back to prison. Statistically speaking, when a a person is uh, system involved and primarily for kids that are involved in the system, the the statistics show that they are nine times as likely as other youth to go back into the system, right? And so if we can break recidivism, right, that's success. And so when we first started this this, uh, contract with the county, they identified three zip codes, 13205, 04, and 07, as having the highest rates of youth recidivism in the county. A year and a half into it, with our help and some other partners in this uh, strategic uh, collaboration and initiative, those are now amongst the lowest. That means we're moving levers on issues that others have not been able to move for years, right? That's, that's to me, is success. Certainly, certainly. Why don't you speak about some of your partners in terms of some of the sure. uh, partners that you've involved in your process as far as making this all work? Um, you know what? So there's one other organization out there right now that we're heavily involved with, Street Addiction. Uh, Timothy Jennings Bay, um, shout out to him, you know, and the work that they're doing over there. Uh, you know, the people with the heart that are like, listen, let's, let's get these kids, right? We've also, because we're a collaborative organization, we also pride ourselves in collaborating with different groups. So the county, I mean, we can't discount the county, right? And so oftentimes we look, people, I think the community is like, oh, you know, systems and, you know, anti-system. And, you know, we have some really key players, um, you know, Ann Rooney, uh, Damian Pratt, Jim Zarniak, Judge Cecil. Um, you know, I could go on and on of people that are in positions of power that are like, no, we have to change and shift these measures, Right. So we are partnered with the county to, you know, to they really helped us funding wise to even get up off the ground and be able to do these types of programming to reach the kids. And because they were frustrated that, you know, we we were these kids were falling through the cracks and we weren't reaching them. Uh, We've collaborated with financial institutions, Pathfinder Bank, uh, Cooperative Federal Credit Union, 
uh, 100 Black Men. We've partnered with them to do you know things and look to partner with them in the future. So I could go on and on and, and, and talk about various partners. Uh, Center for Court Innovation is a big, major partner with us. Why? Because they do peace circles. And so their process of Native American peace circles combined with our um, cultural competency and the way in which we use hip-hop and engage youth has been a tremendous partnership that has helped in a therapeutic way for many of our kids and families, right? So, I, I mean, like I said, I could go on and on. Our, our goal is to make sure that we identify strong partnerships and then we use those partnerships to go out into the community and really give the community what it needs. We can't be the end-all, be-all for everything, right? We can't provide everything. That's not a good model. But what we can do is identify the assets in the community and make sure that the community is connected to them. Very nice. Any final thoughts in terms of things that I may have not mentioned or asked or things that you wish to add? Support us. Two things I see in our communities are lack of financial support, whether it's because we think that we don't have it, right? But imagine if there's 50,000 people and everyone donated a dollar, things that we spend on a daily in the stores and you know whatever else, that's $50,000 that can go towards youth, right? And unfortunately, you know, um, capacity costs in order for you to, to really reach and do your job, we, we have to, you know, so, so support. The other thing that I see in the community is this desire to want to recreate the will. You know, a lot of people, oh, I want to start a nonprofit, I want to do this, I want to do that. And then there's nothing wrong with that because I myself had my vision and I wanted to start that, right? But in order to see that vision through, I don't know if people really fully understand what it takes to get an organization from the red to a million dollars or, or more. And, and, and I, the only reason why I speak in terms of money, when, they, when we hear a million dollars, what does a million dollars mean, right? Let me translate that real quick. A million dollars is a million dollars in programming. What that means is we're able to reach hundreds of youth. So last year alone, we served 750 youth. 500 youth alone teaching them soft skills through um, CNY Works. You know, we've, we've uh, 200 families in our workshops, uh, you know, teaching them financial literacy and entrepreneurship. And we're talking youth and families. 50 youth directly, you know, working with them one-on-one in mentoring. And, and, and that costs money to do, right? So where we are now is uh, able to multiply our reach, our outcomes, our impact. And I think that people have to understand what it takes to get there. It's okay if you believe you, there's nothing else out there that is, fits your model the way that I did, then that's fine. But I did that because there was nothing with my vision. If there are things out there, support them, not just monetarily, support them with your time, with your knowledge, with your experience, with your presence, support them just by showing up and seeing what they need, who you can connect them with, right? We need that. And so that's the only thing that I would leave is let's stop recreating the wheel. If something's already out there, let's form like Voltron and, and make something happen. Okay. Okay. So how would one get engaged with the, uh, with, with the Good Life Youth Foundation if they wanted to find out more or sure. you know, avail themselves? How would they do that? I mean, I think the first thing is to check out our website the way you did and, and see uh, it's uh, deep www.gly.foundation. I know it's a little different. People are used to the .com and .net's orgs. Um, it's gly.foundation. Uh, they can 
kind of see what we're doing already and see and think about where they fit in. What, what, it is, what is it that they can do? Um, is it monetary? Is it time? Is it, you know, expertise? We would love to hear from you. So get in contact with us there. Uh, you can also call us at 315-443-8792 and just have a conversation. Come in and, and let's figure out what you can do to support the movement that we're already uh, engaged in. Wonderful, wonderful. My guest for today has been Hassan Stevens, founder and CEO of the Good Life Youth Foundation. Hassan, I, I wish you well in your Thank efforts. You. It sounds like you have done tremendous work already. So just continue success to you, brother. Thank you. Appreciate it. You can find out more about the Good Life Philanthropic Youth Foundation at their website, gly.foundation, or by calling 315-443-8792. Conversations is a production of More About You. Join us next time.